Welcome to the Hope for Life podcast. We believe that following Jesus happens on the go in your daily life. And our goal is to bring you unique content that will enrich your life with God and that can be accessed on the go in your daily life. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to HFL Speaks. And some of you know that there's multiple different kinds of podcast episodes. So we have story time and and we have nerding out with Tim. But today is the first edition of Smarter Than Tim. Smarter Than Tim. You heard me right. You're not shocked because you already know that that doesn't take much. But today we have a guest, my friend uh, from our days in Edmonton. His name is Nick Mitchell. Nick, hi, welcome. And why don't you just give us a quick intro to who you are, what you do, and maybe something quirky about you. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, I didn't know that I was agreeing to be smarter than Tim, so I'm a little intimidated now. Um, I, uh, I work practicing as a psychiatrist uh, at the University Hospital in Edmonton, and I have a, an administrative role um, in the mental health field with Alberta Health Services as well. So I think that's probably why Tim asked me to come on this particular podcast. Um, my home church is McKernan Baptist Church, where I've been for about uh, 20 years. Um, I'm a master of no instruments, but I enjoy the banjo and the bass and the ukulele. So maybe that's quirky enough for you. Oh, I didn't know about the ukulele and the banjo. <laughs> if, if ever we uh, gather together again, you'll have to play some ukulele and banjo for me. There you go. Well, thank you so much for being here, Nick. Tonight, as you know, we're going to talk about mental health and some of the different aspects of that. Uh, you work in that field alongside of your practice at, at the hospital, like you mentioned. Uh, and so I'm thinking we'll do two sections on mental health initially, at least. And there might be a, a third. We'll see bonus hour. We'll see how long we go here. Uh, but the first section would just be about me, mental health and me. And the second part is about walking with others uh, and being a community that cares and supports and uh, really does what Jesus would do if Jesus were here living in the 21st century. Uh, so we'll kick off with mental health and me. And, and maybe let me ask you uh, to state what may or may not be obvious, but what is mental health? And, and another term that gets asked and or talked about and asked about all the time is resilience. What is resilience too? Yeah. So I think you're right. Mental health is a term that's thrown around a lot, especially during the pandemic. We've heard a lot about um, mental health and people being concerned about it. And I think in, a lot of people have an intuitive understanding of what it is. Uh, when I think about mental health, um, you know, it's kind of the aspects of your health that include your emotional health, uh, maybe your, your psychological, um, your cognitive health, your thought life, but also um, like your social and interpersonal and, uh, uh, and relational life. Um, it's really about kind of how you're thinking, acting, feeling, engaging with the world. Um, so there's a lot of different things that impact you know, someone's mental health that can be things like um, your, your personality structure and makeup, things that are happening in your environment, um, things that are happening in your body. And, and one of the disservices I think that we do when we talk about mental health is to separate it out from other aspects of ourselves. Because, you know, it really, how you're doing physically, how you're doing relationally, interpersonally, spiritually really does impact how you're feeling emotionally and how you're doing in your thought life. Uh, when we talk about, you know, resilience, resilience is a, a concept in, in the field that uh, of, of mental health that really the analogy that's often used is elasticity, right? So you can stretch an elastic band, how far can you stretch it before it snaps? So it's really the ability of 
of, of a person or even a community or uh, to, to resist uh, the impacts of stress. So when you're under stress, you're going to feel it, but how much can you um, recover from it? How quickly can you recover from it? How do you handle that stress when you're under it? And uh, as I say, you know, we talk about a lot of term, a lot of times in, in the context of an individual, but resilience is, is kind of a team sport. We, we rely on each other and use each other to help manage stress. And so an important concept of, or an important aspect of resilience uh, is actually uh, how connected we are to one another and how much we're supporting each other. Hmm. A few things caught me there. I've actually never heard the cognitive side of mental health talked about before. That's really yeah. interesting. Uh, and, and I've also not heard of the idea of resilience as a team sport. Super interesting. <laughs> okay, so a, a quick, I mean, got to ask the psychiatrist. So you said personality. So yeah. like, are we talking Enneagram here? Are we talking Myers-Briggs typology? Like give us the, yeah. this is your yeah. one minute to point sure. to or trash personality models. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, there's a lot of different personality models and structures out there and there's variable amounts of research behind them. Some of them like the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs come more from the field of sociology um, or like social psychology than maybe psychiatry or, you know, clinical uh, psychology, right? So, so are you being nice while you're trashing them right there? No, 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 no. I'm just saying like they're, they're looking at different <laughs> aspects of personality. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair. Love, my friend, right? No, uh, no, no, no. That's, this is what I asked you here for. That's what I asked so you when, here for. So when we're it. talking about personality more in a clinical construct, I mean, what I'm looking at is things like people's patterns of um, emotional reactions, of, of thinking, of reacting to environmental stimuli, of interpersonal interactions um, over time. Those patterns tend to be pretty consistent, but there is some fluidity to us. So you know, people don't always act the same way in every circumstance, but, you know, I have a general idea of who Tim is and what his personality is, is like most of the time, right? Um, so there is some consistency to it. It can change over the, over the lifespan. Um, things like Myers-Briggs, things like an Aagram, those are good tools for being descriptive of different um, ways of interacting, maybe aspects of personality. What bothers me about it is when people use them as proscriptive, right? When it's kind of, instead of thinking like, you know, I took this test and this is the way I answered the questions. And so it gives me this picture of myself. Sometimes people will say, I took this test and it tells me why I am the way I am. I don't think that's accurate. I think that a lot of these tests, I mean, they reflect the answers that you give, right? If you, if you choose A versus C, you might be a type two versus a type nine on the Enneagram but that's based on your response. It's not actually telling you something that you haven't told the test. So it's a description, right? It's a description based on the responses. Um, and that's okay. That, that can be quite helpful, especially when you're working with other people. Mm -hmm. But you know, like a, like a lot of things, it, be, it, it can be too reductive. Like if I just say to myself, well, you know, I know everything I need to know about this person because I know they're Myers-Briggs and I know they're an Aagram. Yeah. I mean, I'm really taking a lot away from who they are. Yeah. Yeah, the, the mystery of a human being is a... Yeah, some would say we're made in the image thing. of God and that we might be a lot more than we first appear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's my hope for me anyways. Um, okay, so kind of a, a dovetail to that, but if somebody is wondering, because there is a lot of talk, especially the last couple of years uh, about... Uh, mental health, how are people doing, lots of doomsday type stuff, lots of real serious challenge though. It, it's been a challenging couple of years and in, in mm -hmm. all kinds of different ways. How might people assess the question, how am I really doing? Sure. 
Well, so there's, there's a couple of thoughts that I've got here. And the first one is that I, I think there's an importance of differentiating between mental health and, and what we talk about is like mental illness or clinical conditions, right? And, and the analogy, again, like sometimes arguing by analogy is helpful and sometimes it isn't. But the analogy I might use is, you know, people can have specific clinical conditions like heart disease or diabetes or cancer, right? Um, and that, that's an illness. And they may or may not be healthy because healthy is, you know, when we talk about health, that's more of a kind of a generic, all-encompassing sort of term that, that, that you know, encapsulates a number of different ideas. I mean, I know some people who are, um, you know, they might have diabetes, but they're very healthy. You know, they're out running marathons and, you know, eating well and sleeping well. And, you know, um, and I know some other folks that might never have a, any clinical condition, but they're not healthy because they're not taking care of themselves, right? So when, when you're talking about an assessment, one of the things that you got to ask yourself is what is it that I'm generally assessing, right? Am I assessing, do I have depression? Do I have anxiety? which I, as a psychiatrist, when I say those words, mean a very specific thing. I mean, a specific set of symptoms that are occurring in a particular context for a certain amount of time that are impacting the way you're functioning, right? Or maybe causing distress. Um, mm. And so those, 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 there are specific assessment tools for those types of clinical conditions. They're best not done by yourself. They're best done in consultation right. with somebody like a family doctor um, or a psychologist or a counselor, somebody that's actually trained because they're, they're screening tools oftentimes. And depending on how you're feeling that day, the screening tool may or may not be accurate. So it's, it's always worth having somebody who's a professional that knows what they're talking about, who can actually go through the screening test with you or the results of it and say, yeah, does that make sense or not, right? Hmm. When you're talking about your mental health, I think that most people um, do have a sense of how mentally healthy they are, by which I mean, they have an idea of um, you know, how much stress am I under and how am I handling it? And some of the signs or signals or things that you can use to evaluate that are things like, you know, are you behaving like yourself? Do you, do you seem to actually um, be managing things the way you normally would? Do you seem like your usual self? Um, are, you, are you sleeping well? Are you engaging in the habits, the rhythms, the routines that normally keep you healthy, right? Or have you given up on them? Are you, not, are you able to enjoy things and engage with, with people and relationships? Or are you withdrawing? Um, you know, those are kind of like broad metrics that you can look at. Sometimes though, it's really hard to tell, or sometimes the people around you are actually better at recognizing some of those subtler signs earlier rather than later. And again, like, this is why I say resilience is a team sport is you need people in your life. Well, I need people in my life, at least that I trust to be able to speak into my life that can say, you know what? you seem a bit snappy, you seem a bit on edge, right? You know, are you doing okay? Because I might not notice that about myself. By the time I get to the point where I notice that I'm not sleeping as well, or I notice that I'm irritable, things have probably gone on further than when my wife notices, right? Like she, she's around me, she knows, she knows me, she loves me, she, she's seen me under stress. And so she's, you know, got a good sense of, of how, how is Nick doing? <laughs> so having people around you that you can trust are probably better than having, well, they're a good augment, at least to a self-assessment. That's really helpful. And, and again, interesting, just thinking through in a highly, uh, like, well, back up for a second. One, one of the things I, I often hear talked about as, as one of the most undiagnosed challenges in our culture is just hyper individualism um yeah. and you know that can be for another smarter than tim podcast really unpacking <laughs> that uh, but it is interesting how it seems like to to flip the elastic band metaphor inevitably you come back to the significance of community oh, in sure. all kinds of ways and 
and of course that just it it, it marries to the biblical narrative uh, you know pun deliberate there but yeah it's <laughs> well you know what and to use the analogy you've probably used that you know hundreds of weddings as a cord of three strands is not easily broken right so i mean it, it's not good for man to be alone there's a lot of truth in scripture i think that you know when we do our best work in the field of social sciences we discover truths that probably god told us a long time ago um, and we rediscover those in different ways. And then we put a different label on it and everyone says, oh, this is a new thing. You know, it's, it's, you know, community, but you know, community is something that people were designed for. Right. Yeah. 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 That's neat. Okay. So uh, I'll give you two different cases. So one person, they listen to what you just said, their wife or husband says they're doing great. Joy's going well. People around them are affirming uh, they're managing their stress. Uh, but still the question would be, uh, what kind of steps might that person take to continue to maintain yep. mental health? Uh, but on the flip side, uh, there's a lot of us that, you know, our community connections have gotten thinner. Uh, and and that's been an effect of the last couple of years. And, and there's a much higher degree of stress in families. Uh, you know, even just recently, uh, somebody described to me a vacation to the United States where in general people are talking about COVID less where they were and they talked about what a relief it was to to feel like they weren't living under this dark cloud. Uh, mm -hmm. So on either case, you think you're doing well, maybe you think you're not doing well. What does it look like to practically pursue mental health? Well, I think I, I use the um, the language of rhythms and routines and practices quite a bit. Um, you know, I think, you know, rule of life, you know, Oh, I'm, oh, I didn't pay him your to church say and that. listeners would be familiar with that, Tim. I didn't pay him to say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot to be said about that. And so, um, you know, there are habits that we tend to get into that can either promote or, or hinder us in terms of our health in general. Right. So, um, a lot of this stuff that, impacts your mental health is the same stuff that impacts your health and other aspects of your life. So if you're doing well, the question you got to look at is, you know, what are the things that help you do well and how do you continue to do them? And for most people, that's things like on the physical side, making sure you're, you know, sleeping regularly and, um, you know, that you're getting enough physical exercise. The, the, the current recommendations are you should be getting at least, you know, 30 minutes of um, some strenuous exercise at least five times a week for, for adults, which, you know, most North Americans don't get, but that's, you know, for optimizing both your physical and mental health, that's kind of the standard, um, you know, eating uh, healthy and regularly, watching a, your consumption of things like alcohol, caffeine, um, uh, you know, smoking or well, trying not to smoke or cutting back on smoking, uh, you know, um, cannabis use. These are all things that, you know, people would be, I, I think, would agree are relatively self-evident contributors. Um, some of the things that, you know, might be, uh, maybe less attended to, or maybe easier to give up on, I think would be things like our relationships. Like kind of like you mentioned, you know, when we're under stress, when there's pressure at work, you know, the, 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 the pressure from work might say, spend more time doing that. And so we spend more time doing that, but then what do we give up? We give up time with our loved ones. We give up our recreation activities, um, the things that give us purpose and meaning and joy. There's a lot of good research evidence now that shows that people that engage in, you know, um, pro-social or altruistic activities. So things where they're contributing to the well-being of others report much higher levels of personal wellness and satisfaction and mental health than people that don't. I mean, <laughs> if you're doing something that contributes to the well-being of some, somebody else, part of the spinoff effect is that you, you contribute to your own mental health and wellness by having purpose. 
I mean, from, from the spiritual aspect of it, I think that there's, um, you know, as, as a Christian, I, I believe strongly that, you know, much like we rely on God to sustain us in, in our physical lives, we rely on God to, or to uh, sustain us in our mental lives as well, right? And in our emotional lives. And so, um, you know, that's things like um, maintaining rhythms of prayer and, and Bible reading and scripture, but also having people in your life that you can talk to about what you're struggling with, the existential questions that you're wrestling with. Um, so those are all positive things. If, if people are struggling, I think the hardest part is that you hear this laundry list that I just gave and you say, man, I'm not doing any of those things, right? And that can kind of put you into despair. One of the biggest challenges I think folks face is, or can face is looking at what other people are doing and comparing themselves and thinking, well, you know, Tim's doing that. And like, look at how healthy he is. I, I should be just like Tim, but you're not built like Tim. You're not designed like Tim. God created you to be different. And so you know, not comparing yourself to others, but instead asking yourself, you know, okay, with everything that's going on, what is one realistic thing I can do right now? What is one habit I can build in? And when you've built that habit in, whether it be, you know, going to bed at a regular time or cutting back on your alcohol intake or saying, you know what, I'm going to spend, you know, five minutes in prayer a day, like not 50 minutes, but five minutes, right? Um, but once you've got that one thing down, then you add the next thing, but you don't add the next thing until you've incorporated the first thing because um, otherwise you can get discouraged and, and trying to trying to build habits that are sustainable you've got to be realistic about it and, and and take it slowly over time as opposed to trying to jump in and do everything at once totally totally it, it's interesting the you reference a couple things i'm chewing on the most interesting study i think i read in the last year or read about i didn't read the study was i think it's called the notre dame uh, altruism study or generosity mm -hmm. study. Uh, but the idea was that the same part of your brain got lit up mm -hmm. when you give away money as when you do something like win the lottery. Uh, and, and this idea that people who give more and, and things like that actually correlate to it correlates to much higher levels of happiness. And, mm -hmm. and so and, and I mean, it goes on and on and on. But it, it is a, a fascinating thing that oh. many times, it turns out in dying, you live well, and so I think, speak. and again, like truths that the Bible's told us for years, I mean, it, it's a, a related conversation, but I mean, the neuroscience behind this is really fascinating, right? So, I mean, one example uh, 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 that I use a lot with folks is, uh, you know, um, untreated depression or unmanaged stress actually causes brain damage. And, you know, when I say that people go, well, that's, that's, you know, that sounds really uh, sensationalist, but it's actually true. So your brain uh, normally regenerates. So you, you have nerve cells that, that rebuild and regenerate over time. Um, and, you know, years ago, we didn't think that was the case. We thought that, you know, your brain was kind of fixed once you were an adult and it, from there it was all downhill, but that's not true. Throughout your life, you actually have ongoing what's called neurogenesis, which is the, the formation of new, uh, new neurons and new synapses. When you have high levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone in your system, it actually impairs that. And over time, um, and this has been demonstrated with, you know, studies, uh, MRI scans of people that have untreated depression or high levels of anxiety. It actually physically alters the structure of your brain. It thins it out. You don't have those nerves regrowing. And, um, and, and again, this is kind of nerding out with Tim. Maybe this is more the clinical. Uh, this, is, this is great. What if, if, if I, as a, as a psychiatrist, see somebody who is clinically depressed, if I treat them with talk therapy, if I treat them with medication, if I treat them with um, like a seasonal affective disorder light, if I treat them um, with electroconvulsive therapy, and yes, we still do that, 
Um, Interesting. It doesn't matter how I treat them. If I treat their depressive symptoms, if, if my treatment is effective for the depressive symptoms, I actually cause new nerves to grow in their brain. And in fact, there's, there's studies in animal models that show that, um, I mean, we can't do these sorts of studies in humans, but they, they can give chemicals that block new nerves from forming. And in animal models of depression, it doesn't matter what we do to treat them. If we stop those nerves from regrowing, we can never treat their depression. So it's actually really fascinating because, you know, from a, from a physical standpoint, like we think, we tend to think of our emotional selves I mean, it's kind of the holdover of, you know, maybe Cartesian dualism or Gnosticism, right? But we, try, we think of our, our emotional cognitive selves as somehow being separate from our physical selves. But it turns mm -hmm. out that's not the case. It turns out that, like, there is actually a physical correlate to how you're feeling in your brain. And the way you're feeling actually impacts the structure of your brain. Fascinating. And, oh. and we won't go down this road. I no, Somebody no, no. just, no, well, no, I just was going to say there's a podcast I just recently heard about called the Huberman podcast. And he's a neuroscientist for one of the Ivy League universities in the States. And it's all about sort of popularizing. Anyways, I was listening to an episode on social bonding and relationships. And he was talking about uh, the, the relationship of dopamine release relative mm -hmm. Like you, you have a literal hunger for physical relationships. And there was interesting stuff about actually the introverts among us um, have, uh, they need less of a hit to get a bigger dose and the mm -hmm. extroverts among us, they get less. It's like through the lens of almost an addiction to a substance, except that it's perfectly normal and healthy. But this idea of, anyways, it, it was a fascinating, fascinating episode and how the circuits from when you're a kid and attaching to your parents then get used and repurposed later in life. And again, that's a, we'll have a nerding out with Nick yeah, episode yeah. all about crazy neuroscience well, sometime. Could, yeah, kind of bring us back to like the resilience thing. One of the things that's really important, and I mean, through the pandemic, I think this has been a challenge um, for a lot of families is how do we help our kids kind of manage the impact of stress during the pandemic? And um, there's a lot of good evidence that shows that um, one of the most important things for kids in terms of resilience and managing stress is having one solid consistent attachment figure. If, you, if they've got more than one, that's fantastic, but they have to have at least one. And what, what I mean by a solid consistent attachment figure is somebody who is present in their lives, not just physically, but also emotionally, somebody that they trust that they can come to when they're feeling distressed and somebody who can actually model good coping strategies, who can model resilience because they learn that our kids will learn by watching us. They'll learn to handle stress by watching how we handle stress. And so when I've talked to parents, when I've talked to, you know, media, whoever about, you know, what can we do for our kids in terms of helping them to model or in helping them to manage stress during the pandemic, my response is talk to them about how we're doing it, because that's what they'll learn from. They'll learn the strategies and they'll employ those strategies and they'll be effective for them as well. Hmm. Well, you just provided a, beautiful bridge to the the next portion of this interview which is about walking with others um so in the midst of the last couple of years in the midst of the pandemic people talk all the time about a current and coming crisis of mental health mm -hmm. uh, and so before we get to how we walk with others can you just comment briefly on you know what do we mean by that and as by somebody who's working in that department for the mm -hmm. government of alberta uh, what do you mean when you say that yeah, so I, I think that um, there's been a lot of concern about this and, and there's some reason for it. So there's been a lot of population level surveys. There was actually a really good one done by the Canadian Mental Health Association in Alberta that um, was a self-response, which you've always got to question, you know, 
we call someone up on the telephone and ask them questions, you know, how, how accurate is, is it? But um, it was a, a survey of people's mental health. And uh, the number that I recall was 93% uh, of Albertans said that their mental health was worse during the pandemic, right? Which if you think about it, um, I'm not sure what that means about the other 7%, because when it's 93%, I mean, with margins of error, that's pretty much everybody, right? Um, so, and, and I think in general, that's true, because, you know, again, if we go back to the, the, the broader concept of mental health, I think what a lot of people are saying and what, what's come out in other um, kind of surveys and studies is that people are experiencing more stress. They're feeling more stress, not just because of, um, you know, concern about the pandemic, but concerns about the impacts of the pandemic, right? So whether that be changes in their work environment, lost income, um, changes in family environment. Um, you know, for a lot of us early in the pandemic, um, we spent more time with our family than we ever had before, which could be a positive thing. But if you have conflict with your family, that just increased, in some cases, the pressure, right? Because you were always together. Mm. Um, from a clinical standpoint, um, I can tell you, so uh, Alberta Health Services has a mental health helpline that can, is available 24-7. Um, during the, the first phase of the pandemic, um, the number of calls that uh, Healthline went up by about uh, six times, and they've just grown throughout the pandemic. So, that, I mean, they used to get 30 calls a day. At the start of the pandemic, it hit 100, and then quickly 200, and now we're up well over like three, 400 calls a day, sometimes higher. Every time there's a, a new um, announcement of government restrictions, we see a spike, and then it's it, it drops off slightly, but um, still stays higher than the previous baseline. And, and most of those calls are people saying, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling distressed, I'm not sleeping as well. Um, we've seen a lot of people calling in saying, I'm drinking more or I'm using more cannabis than I used to and I'm concerned about that. And so there's a lot of questions on that. Um, so we are seeing those, those impacts. Um, you know, some things like um, rates of, you know, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder haven't changed. Those things are the same. Um, but a lot of the conditions that are more um, kind of stress responsive, um, we're seeing people who either, um, you know, have never experienced anxiety or depression before saying, hey, I'm experiencing this for the first time. People who had had it in the past, but who were stable are now experiencing relapses under ex maybe more increased stress. Um, and so they're coming forward. There was some research as well that showed that um, in Ontario, we, do we don't have the same numbers for Alberta, but they had a a 50% increase in antidepressant prescribing during the pandemic. Now, again, the, you know, when I hear those numbers, that's a pretty significant increase. I got to wonder, is that actually a necessary increase? You know, was that, that, you know, we actually need, there's that many more people that were depressed that needed the medication, or was it that, you know, in a context where people didn't have access to other sorts of treatment and resources, doctors were saying, well, I'm going to give you a pill because you can't access therapy or, you know, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of contextual factors to that sort of information, but we we've definitely see a, uh, an increase in people that are coming forward saying they're struggling. Hmm. Hmm. So we've talked a little bit, and you made a good, uh, I well a good a good framework you gave before about the difference between mental illness and mental health. Yeah. So talking mental illness for a second, mm -hmm. uh, you've used the phrases clinical uh, diagnoses of things yeah. like uh depression anxiety so those are two of the ones that you hear or at least i hear talked about the most can you just briefly explain so what what does that mean in your work sure. well so the first thing i'm going to say is like the, the reason why we, we um make a like I, I say i'm making a clinical diagnosis we make that distinction um is because 
you know, we've got to recognize that there are certain feelings that we have that are a normal part of being human that everyone has that can be transient that don't require any sort of um, or that may not require any sort of intervention or, you know, professional advice or guidance that people can, can manage in their natural support systems. Um, which isn't to say that those aren't real experiences, but when I'm talking about somebody that you know has depression or anxiety, that's probably um, somebody that's experiencing symptoms or dysfunction at the threshold where they require some sort of intervention or treatment that might be provided by a professional, right? So, okay. like, so I'm not if somebody's saying, well, you know, I'm anxious, and this guy just said my anxiety is not important because I'm not on the medication. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. So when I when I talk about depression, what I'm talking about is somebody who, for a period of at least two weeks, has had at least five of nine symptoms, which include, you know, decreased mood, decreased interest or engagement in life, problems with sleep, problems with appetite, problems with energy, feeling sped up or slowed down, problems with memory or concentration, feelings of guilt or worthlessness, and suicidal ideation or thoughts of killing themselves, right? So and like, you have to have five of those nine symptoms for two weeks. Those symptoms have to be impacting your function, okay? That, that's called depression. Now, um, you know, th there's different severity. It can be mild, moderate, or severe, depending on, you know, the, the degree of impact in your life. And that re is really what dictates treatment. Um, so if somebody has maybe more mild depression, sometimes that can be managed with just lifestyle modification um, or addressing stresses. Um, for mild depression, oftentimes um, psychotherapies are the first line of treatment. Um, you may not even need a medication. Or if you do need a medication, it might be more just symptom targeted for something like sleep. If somebody's more moderate or severely depressed, you might need a medication. If you're acutely suicidal, if you're if you're having thoughts of hurting yourself or killing yourself, you might need to be hospitalized, right? So, so so we differentiate that, you know, you know, grief, loss, sadness. Some sometimes in the vernacular, people say I'm depressed, but you know, we, I would differentiate those from what I'm thinking of as a psychiatrist uh, or as a clinician when I talk about depression. Okay. Similarly, for for anxiety, when people talk about anxiety. I mean, a lot of times they're talking about worrying and that is an aspect of anxiety. But, you know, when I talk about anxiety, um, people would be experiencing significant worry. And that could be about a particular thing like COVID or it could be more generalized. And that anxiety is causing them physical symptoms like maybe muscle tension or again, like problems with sleep or problems with energy um, could be interfering with their ability to focus or concentrate and get their work done. And Oftentimes people with anxiety will say, I know I'm worrying, like they'll recognize that their anxiety is, is excessive uh, or, or more than what they would expect to experience. Um, or they'd say, you know, the impact of it is just excessive, right? Like it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always a worrier, but now I worry so much I can't pay attention in class, right? And so it's, it's when it's, it has that functional impact that I'd say, okay, well, now we got to do something about it, right? It's, you know, like I say, everyone everyone worries at times to a certain degree. I mean, some of us more than others. Some people say they never worry because they're always in control. Those people, they're just closet worriers. Um, <laughs> but if you're worrying to the point where, you know, you're not able to function, well, then you probably need some sort of treatment or intervention or you'd benefit from it anyway. So, um, so when I'm talking about like the, the mental illness side of it, that's kind of what we're referring to. That's perfect. So, can you give just a bit of input about, uh, in this case, walking with other people mm -hmm. in the midst of mental illness? And, and you talked about, too, the difference between, you know, mild uh, or moderate or severe. Uh, mm -hmm. So some of our people have taken people to the hospital because mm -hmm. they didn't think they were safe anymore. Uh, and, and some have friends or, or have themselves tried to commit suicide at different times. 
Um, so just talk a little bit about how do you be a good support system? How do, how do you handle things like, you know, is it a terrible thing to build a boundary? Do we build boundaries too quickly? Uh, you know, like, I guess, I know you can't, every case is unique. And so I'll build a massive caveat for you that yeah. every case is unique. Uh, but could you give some just general advice about walking with people who are really struggling? Yeah, so it's so like Tim is saying, don't take any of my advice as being from a professional. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I think I think it is true. So every every case is different. But I mean, the first thing I'd say when you're when you're walking with anybody who has mental illness, the first thing for an individual is to kind of have a good sense of themselves and what they're capable of handling. Because I mean, before you before you agree to take something on, I mean, you you don't want to put yourself in a position that exceeds your own capacities or your own expertise. I mean, if, you, if you're not a therapist, don't say to somebody like, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do therapy with you, right? I mean, if that's not what you're trained to do, leave it up to the experts. I would never ever say I'm a personal trainer and start giving people advice on, you know, you know how to build muscle. That's not, that's not what I do. Um, and, and similarly, you know, if somebody's struggling with depression and you don't know, sometimes the best thing you can say is, you know what, I can be here with you. You know, I can walk with you through this if you're able to do that, but you can't necessarily provide specific advice. And that's okay. That's okay. So know, know your own limits, your own expertise and what you can do. And I think beyond that, the second most important thing is listen. Because oftentimes, um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a stigma attached to men, uh, mental illness. Oftentimes there can be a desire, especially if it's somebody you love to want to fix it or to help. Um, sometimes you can't. And sometimes that's not what the person's looking for. Sometimes... Maybe they've already got somebody that's helping them. They're already seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist and they just want somebody to listen to them. And so being able to, you know, ask someone like, you know, what, what can I do for you? Like not, not in a confrontational, like, what do you want from me kind of way, but, you know, honestly saying, you know, like, what can I do for you? And then listening to their response and actually taking it at face value. If they say, well, I just need somebody to talk to, then be somebody to talk to. And if they say, you know, I don't know where to go. If you know where to go, great. But if you don't, you know, then saying, well, let's figure it out, right? I mean, you can be the, the fingers that type into the Google search. Um, so I think that's important. I think the other, the other part that's important is that you never want to be the only support person for somebody that's struggling. You never want to be in a situation where you feel like you're, you're carrying someone else's or you're responsible for someone else's health. Um, so make sure that, you know, anybody that you're, you're walking with um, who's struggling with mental health or mental illness that they have other people in their lives that they're speaking to as well, um, or, and um, that they're connected with professional services because you don't wanna ever be put in a situation where you have that pressure on yourself that you, you, know, you feel you have to carry it all for them. Beyond that, what I'd say is, you know, um, really, I think a lot of it is, is just being present. Oftentimes, it's kind of like if someone is sick and they're you know, in the hospital with physical health problems or you know they're at home recovering from surgery sometimes all they want is somebody to sit with them and you know watch the oilers beat the flames you know that's really all they need easy easy <laughs> <laughs> and just for your listeners i am a flames fan but you know the game on saturday anyway point of the story is you know sometimes it's just being with somebody that that's enough right um and to to be present with with people oftentimes is is just as helpful as anything else and and the, the 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 temptation to rush in and do something is often more about making us comfortable right uh, it's often more about the, the the person who's who's there feeling like they need to do something or contribute than it is that the person on the other end really wants something so that's a 
that's a key insight that pops up all over the place. Like how many times our, our attempts to help people are really us managing our own insecurities mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and and wrestling. And those of you at Hope for Life, I apologize for the many times I've done that <laughs> with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I guess the follow-up that I'd say to that, though, is that sometimes there are people who are resistant to seeking help. Like I say, there's a huge stigma around um, mental illness, right? I mean... I've seen it in the church, but it's in general population as well. I think, you know, there, there've been a lot of conversations in the media. There's things like, you know, I mean, Bell Let's Talk Day is coming up, which, you know, is, is supposed to be about raising awareness about mental health and mental illness. And I think in general, there's a more broader societal acceptance about talking about mental health and mental illness. But when it hits home, when it's somebody, you know, it can still be really hard. And so, you know, I think the other, the other, you know, advice, the worst advice is advice, but the other advice is if you see someone who's struggling, you know, saying, you know, listen, I care about you, you're struggling, maybe you should talk to somebody about this, right, whether that's, you know, their family doctor, or, you know, there are a number of helplines, or or things like that, um, can often be valuable, but if they say no, I mean, you kind of got to respect their autonomy, Um, make it known that you're speaking in love, you care about them, you're worried about them, at the end of the day, you can't coerce or force somebody or you, you don't want to be trying to coerce or force somebody into something they're not ready for or don't want. Sure. Well, that's, yeah, two specific questions and then we'll wrap up this section and, and pretty much the interview too. But um, so one is just that piece. What about when somebody is stuck and they don't want help? And, you know, like let's paint. So several of our people are involved in, in social work type scenarios, but also just family, friends, um, so, you know, somebody is suicidal and, and, you know, maybe you don't think they're going to, they don't have a plan, things like that. So you don't need to call 911, but yeah. they won't get help. Uh, how do you walk in those kind of scenarios? Well, I think, I mean, again, the, the, the first thing is to make the, the individual know that you're present and you're available, right. And that you're worried, right. And so, or that you you care about them, that you, you think that, you know, um, that they would benefit from, from, see, from seeing someone. I mean, that, that can be your opinion. They can disagree with you. Um, but, you know, I think part of it is, is, is at least speaking your piece and making it known, right? Um, beyond that, I think, you know, the, the other thing that can sometimes be helpful is, you know, maybe it's that you don't want to talk to me, Tim. Maybe, maybe you do think you need to talk to somebody, but you don't want to talk to me, right? And so having a, a sense of, you know, where people can turn to for support is, is valuable, right? And so sometimes... I mean, that can be, and I'm not putting you on the spot because I know, I mean, this is not, you're not, you're not there to be a clinician, but I mean, sometimes it can be saying, you know, like talk to Tim because, you know, if Tim can't help you, he can point you somewhere else. Right. So sometimes it can be something like a pastor or a teacher or a mentor or somebody else. Or, I mean, there are a number of uh, like helplines that are not um, 911. So 911 is, you know, it's there for emergencies. If people are acutely unsafe, that's the right thing to do. Even if, they're telling you they don't want to, it's the right thing to do um, in that moment. But if it's not an acute crisis, um, so there's a mental health helpline through Alberta Health Services, um, 1-877-303-2642. I've given out that number so many times during the pandemic, I got it memorized. Um, but it's, it's a 24 seven helpline across the province you can call. And the people on the other end of the line are actually psychologists, psychiatric nurses, social workers that work in mental health. And so you can say, this is what I'm dealing with. What should I do? And they can provide you with some advice that's actually specific to the individual that you're dealing with. 
and specific to the community that you're in. Because if you say, hey, I'm in Calgary or I'm in Airdrie or, or wherever, they can say, well, here's actually the local mental health clinic, right? Or they, they, they can mm. connect you with those local resources or tell you where to go. The other organizations that you know can, can be helpful are things like the Canadian Mental Health Association. They've got a lot of really good information on their website. Um, and they've got um, uh, like peer support services and other kind of non-clinical services that can actually be very helpful um, in people who are managing uh, dealing with mental illness. And so, I mean, that's another great place to point people if they're like, well, I don't want to talk to a doctor, right? I mean, I don't want to, it's another, it's another resource that's out there. Hmm. Um, so there are those sorts of resources. So even if you just know a couple of them, right? I mean, if you, if you go on um, the Alberta Health Services website uh, called Help in Tough Times, if you go to the AHS main page, um, you'll see there's like, you know, under all the COVID stuff, there's a, a Help in Tough Times website link. Um, and it, it has a whole bunch of information on mental health, mental illness, different diagnoses, where to get help for different things across the province, all the help num lines and numbers. So if you don't know, if you're sitting there thinking, man, like I'm concerned about my child, spouse, pastor, whoever, right? You can go on there and actually just find some information that, that might help you figure out whether you should be concerned or not, or give you some idea on resources or where to turn. Hmm. That That's perfect. So uh, one more question. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody... Well, two questions wed together. Everyone at Hope for, Hope for Life will laugh because I'm chronically long-winded and I chronically <laughs> ask five questions at once. Well, um, now but... you invited me, who's equally long-winded on the podcast. <laughs> no, this is this has been great. So, uh, the first question is: Does can mental health be cured, or mental illness, not mental health, can mental illness be cured? And the second piece of that is, as with any illness. Sometimes there are long and just brutal journeys trying to find hope. Uh, yep. You know, you've you've tried talk therapy, you've tried it twice, you've been on meds, the meds keep getting reset, or you had a good dose and then after X amount of months, it, you know, it's not working anymore, but you don't want to go back to the doctor or, mm -hmm. and so on and so And then there's all of the, you know, stigma related questions. So just what kind of advice, what would you say to yeah. people in those cases? And, and I guess the first question, just does anybody fully recover? Yeah, so I would make the distinction between recovery and cure, right? So there are very few things in, in medicine that we cure. I mean, the surgeons will tell you that they cure cancer by removing it, but they actually cut into your body and removed part of you, right? So, I mean, is that actually a cure? They haven't like miraculously undone what has been done to you. Um, like most things in, in medicine, uh, with our current technologies, with our current techniques and practices, we treat mental illness, we don't tend to cure it. I've seen folks who, I have seen some folks who, you know, they have one episode of, uh, you know, depression or anxiety, often people who you can identify that there's a very specific trigger for it, that once it's managed, it doesn't recur. Because, I mean, even though they have the propensity or the underlying, you know, um, uh, disposition that they could have depression or anxiety again, it only occurs because of, you know, that specific stressor, which never, you know, they don't experience. Um, mo most often, though, uh, it does tend to be kind of chronic um, and um, the sort of thing that we, we treat. Now, that being said, most people with depression or anxiety or even things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, some of our more like what we would call severe and persistent mental illness, which isn't to say anxiety and depression aren't severe, but these are the ones that, you know, uh, more often cause people to permanently lose function. Um, most people who are treated with those actually go into recovery. And, and by recovery, what we talk about in recovery is not so much about um, 
that you never have symptoms again. It's that your symptoms are minimal. They're causing you no functional problems or distress. So you can live your life, right? You can engage it. It's, it's moving away from a disease focus to a person focus to say, you know what? You're not your illness. You are a person. So let's manage your illness to the point where it's not dominating who you are and what you do. You are deciding who you are. Well, you don't decide who you are. Well, the world would tell you you decide who you are, but that's probably a different podcast. Um, you know, God tells you who you are and you're doing what you've been called to do. You're living your life, right? Um, so despite you having had episodes of depression or anxiety or, or you know, struggling with addictions in the past, you know, if you, if you use the model of addictions from, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, even people that are abstinent, you know, they still identify as, you know, being alcoholic, which, you know, they're in remission, they're, they're recovered, but they still have that underlying propensity. So that's kind of more the way that we tend to think of, of management or treatment of mental illnesses, that they are chronic illnesses. Now, some people stay on medications, some people come off of them and do just fine. Some people have multiple relapses. Um, some people, you know, will have maybe two or three during their lifetime, you know, so it's, it can be highly variable. But yeah, we don't we don't think of it as cure. I mean, I, I still leave it to God to, if he chooses to cure somebody, he's going to do it. Um, but he's yeah. probably the only one that can do it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I I appreciate that, Nick, and I appreciate your insight. I'm just thinking about uh, years ago. I wonder if it's on my bookshelf still. It must be somewhere here. I I read this book called Darkness Is My Closest Companion by Catherine McCrite. Uh, so Sounds like the sort of book you would read. <laughs> right? I'm just so much fun. Um, <laughs> it, it, the, the lady, the author was, I believe, a chaplain at Yale, if I'm remembering mm -hmm. right. And she was diagnosed with, uh, is it manic depressive disorder? Yeah, we call it bipolar uh, disorder, but yeah. Bipolar, sorry. Uh, so anyways, it, and it's just a stunning set of theological reflections on uh, her journey through that. Uh, and and it it was piercing and it was helpful and it was deep uh, and and it it really sang a song that is not sung much in our culture, which is that uh, well two things one the song of hope and two the song that even in the darkness you can discover a God who's with you and He's faithful oh, and that sure. He'll use it yep. uh, and not not as if you know just rejoice. She talks about lament. She talks about the struggle. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyways, it, it was a powerful. Uh, compelling read and it is still on my bookshelf so if somebody wants to they can borrow it uh, yeah so I mean to, to answer your question about hope though I think that I mean that is that is part of it is is you know what are you putting your hope in or what are you hoping for right I mean it's kind it's kind of like again I think you know we are we do a great disservice to ourselves when we somehow separate out our mental health our emotional lives our cognitive lives from our physical lives because you know if somebody you know, in your congregation was in a car accident and they lost their leg, right? I mean, they would go through a period of adaptation, right? They might need a prosthesis, um, you know, a, 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 aside from that leg regrowing itself miraculously, we wouldn't consider them cured from losing that leg, right? But they can still have a completely full and normal life having lost a leg. But somehow in the world of mental or like diabetes, you know, somebody who's a diabetic, you know, might be on insulin for the rest of their lives, but, you know, they can live a fully, you know, normal in quotations, life with diabetes, but we somehow differentiate 
aspects of our mental health and say, well, you know, and, and this is, I think this contributes to the stigma as well. Um, we say, you know, somebody who's depressed or anxious, you know, in some ways it's different. And I actually, as a, as a, as a physician or as a psychiatrist, the argument I make is it's actually not different. It's actually the same thing as diabetes. It's just a different symptom. And so, you know, when somebody is, is struggling with depression, kind of like with diabetes, there's lifestyle things you do, you know, there's diet, there's exercise, there's certain, you know, assessments you have to do to make sure you're healthy. And there's certain treatments you have to take. And if you take those treatments and they work for you, you know, you can live a healthy, you know, full life. But some people are brittle diabetics and despite the best management, they still end up in the hospital recurrently with their blood sugars all over the place because, you know, that's just the nature of their diabetes. And there's some people who have mental illness that it is more treatment refractory and harder to manage. And, and that, that, is, that is the case, sadly, for some folks. But despite that, the, the question I have when I'm, when I'm seeing them is what can I do? And this is actually, I mean, this is why I went into the field I went into. There's some people that, you know, have said, you know, can you be a Christian and a psychiatrist? And I, my response is, I don't know how you can be a psychiatrist without being a Christian, because I get to walk into, you know, people's lives when they are struggling with some of the most intimate and difficult problems that they face. And um, I can't fix it but maybe I can do something to make it better, whether that's just because of my presence or because of listening to them or because there's something I can prescribe or do for them or suggest to them. Um, you know, it's, it's the ability to actually sit with another human being um, while they weep. And, you know, sometimes all you can do is weep with them. And sometimes that's enough. Uh, a final comment, and then I'll let you make a final comment. Sure. Uh, and and we're gonna kick. We we have a whole interesting conversation about opioids and harm <laughs> reduction. That and I should have known we would never get there, uh, and and you warned me that we would probably never get there, and and that's okay. You you've invited yourself to round two. Um, <laughs> well, let's, but, see the, uh, let's see what the uh, the uh, Apple reviews are for round one. That's <laughs> right. That's right. All six of you who've listened this far, thank you. Um, the the thing I'm thinking about, Nick, in fact, it, it's one of my fascinations when you were talking about uh, walking with people as they're struggling with mental illness. Uh, two of the things you talked about were listening and being present. Mm -hmm. and, and it's my growing conviction that, you know, there's this Scotiabank ad, you're richer than you think. Uh, I we have been given by God some resources that are chronically undervalued societally. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and two of them are our attention, uh, you know, our, our presence, our ears. Uh, that's not two. I, I, my math is better than that. But, but we, have, <laughs> we have these things that in many cases, it's kind of funny. So even, you know, in a sense, here you are, you're a highly trained medical professional saying those things matter. And yet there's this resistance in us mm -hmm. uh, many times to really believe that things like that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet increasingly, I'm reminded, uh, as in so many ways with the Christian way, that you have to decide, will you walk a different way? And there's this immense resource and rich uh, opportunity God gives us every day of our life, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have these things, that, they're renewable and non-renewable all at once. You, you get new ones if you wake up tomorrow. <laughs> uh, but but we can use our attention. And it strikes me, you know, so often, at least in the Christian world, we think the riches we have to share are our money or perhaps our gifts. And there's these other things which are incredibly powerful. And I just wonder if we underutilize them. I agree. Final I agree. thoughts from you? 
No, I mean, just to reflect on that, I think that, you know, the things that we tend to forget is, is the first is that we're created in God's image. And I mean, that should be the most important thing about us, but we tend not to think that way. And the second thing, I mean, which maybe is the most important thing about us, I'm not, I'm not the theologian here, is that we carry the Holy Spirit with us if we're Christians wherever we go, right? I mean, we carry the presence of God with us. And so, I mean, you're right. I mean, we don't tend to, we think about, you know, I mean, even like, you know, the fact that, you know, you say I'm highly trained. I mean, so I'm an expert and we live in a world of experts. And so we tend to kind of outsource knowledge and expertise, but for individuals, for people, I mean, oftentimes they are the experts on themselves. I don't go around telling people they're depressed. They come to me and they say, this is what I'm experiencing. And I give them a, a name for it. Right. But, but I don't actually know what they're experiencing. They know what they're experiencing. And they tell me, I mean, the, the, the second most expert person on me, again, is my wife. And so sometimes if I don't recognize it, it's actually recognizing, well, maybe she's actually the expert on me and I'm the second most expert on me, but you know, <laughs> it's recognizing that, you know, there are people around you that know you, right. And have that expertise. What I'd say is, you know, it, it's worth having that conversation. Um, if you feel you're struggling or you think that someone else um, is struggling, it's worth having that conversation with somebody that, you know, you trust um, it's so important for us to not buy into the lie that we are alone, um, that we walk alone. And one, I think it's one of, you know, um, Satan's greatest tools is to convince us that we walk alone. Um, and isolation, I mean, it, you know, if you, if you step into the secular research realm, isolation is a risk factor for anxiety, depression. It's also an independent risk factor for all-cause all mortality, for cancer, and for heart disease. And so isolation, you know, is bad. Isolation is bad for us. And so we need to be connected to one another. We need to be connected to one another in ways that allow us to encourage one another and speak into one another's lives. That's a, that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for doing this, Nick. Uh, thanks pleasure. for inviting yourself back for a, another episode someday. Uh, and yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, lots of fun. Thanks, Tim. <laughs>